This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you very much. And welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Alex Clark. If you are enjoying your cup of coffee, give up a, a word of thanks for Prestige Scotland, who've supplied it for us. Um, it's so <coughs> wonderful to see so many people here at just after 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. We were not absolutely certain, were we? <laughs> <laughs> Nadim and I have seen each other already very early this morning when we were evacuated from our hotel after a fire alarm went off so now we find ourselves in a kind of tent it, it, it's quite a surreal morning isn't it it is rather <laughs> but yes. i'm delighted to be to be here with nadine we're going to talk about his new book the blind man's garden and his other books we're going to talk about all sorts of things <clears throat> i think you're going to start aren't you nadine by telling us a bit about the book and, and reading giving okay. us a short extract from it okay. um, thank you alex and thank you everyone for coming um, I'm going to read to you the first chapter of the novel, which is um, just a one-page chapter, just a small thing, and <laughs> and um, and then I will explain um, something about why this chapter ended up be being at the head of the novel. So um, this book, *The Blind Man's Garden*. <clears throat> Um, uh, we've lived through an extraordinary decade, uh, beginning with 9-11 and ending with the Arab, sp Arab Spring and its consequences. Um, Muhammad Atta's suicide at one end and Muhammad Al-Bouazizi's suicide at the other end. Muhammad Al-Bouazizi was the Tunisian fruit seller, if you recall, who set himself on fire in December 2010 and died the following month and his death sparked off the Arab Spring. And between these two moments in this decade, we had the war on terror, the call to jihad, the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, the murder of Benazir Bhutto, the shooting of Malala Yousafzai, the schoolgirl in Pakistan, um, the finding and killing of Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. A clash seems to have occurred between an incomplete understanding of the East and an incomplete understanding of the West. Not long ago, I was on Google, and I typed in, Pakistan is. And the four autofill choices I was given were stupid, evil, dangerous, a terrorist country. I typed in, America is. And the choices I was given were not the world, evil, not a country, but a business. And so I wanted to, with the blind man's garden, find a story which will hold as many of these elements as possible without losing shape as a novel. Because first and foremost, it's a fiction. Um, so I wanted to place these various elements next to each other and let the reader make up his or her own mind. I think writers shouldn't tell the reader what to think, they should tell them what to think about. And um, reading is thinking with two brains, your own and the writer's. So at the end you will come to some kind of conclusion, I can't dictate that. 
So that's the story of the novel, uh, and, I'm, and I'm now going to read the first chapter, and then I will say a few words about how it ended up there. So, <clears throat> but a man's lifeblood is dark and mortal. Once it wets the earth, what song can sing it back? Iceless. Chapter one. History is the third parent. As Rohan makes his way through the garden, not long after nightfall, a memory comes to him from his son Gio's childhood, a memory that slows him and eventually brings him to a standstill. Ahead of him, candles are burning in various places at the house because there is no electricity. Wounds are set to emit light under certain conditions. Touch them and the brightness will stay on the hands. And as the candles burn, Ruhan thinks of each flame as an injury somewhere in his house. One evening, as he was being told a story by Rohan, a troubled expression had appeared on Gio's face. Rohan had stopped speaking and gone up to him and lifted him into his arms, feeling the tremors in the small body. From dusk onwards, the boy tried to reassure himself that he would continue to exist after falling asleep, that he would emerge again into light on the other side. But that evening, it was something else. After a few minutes, he revealed that his distress was caused by the appearance of the villain in the story he was being told. Rohan had given a small laugh to comfort him and asked, but have you ever heard a story in which the evil person triumphs at the end? The boy thought for a while before replying, no, he said, but before they lose, they harm the good people. That is what I'm afraid of. And so that's the first chapter of the novel. And um, it came, and the book took four and a half years to write, and this segment was originally quite deep in the novel. And as I revised the book, it kept coming forward and forward and forward. And, and I think about six weeks before I finished the manuscript, I realized that this was what the book was about. And it came out of a conversation I had with a friend talking about exactly what I've just mentioned, that this decade of, of terrible things that we've seen. And, and this friend of mine said that, well, you know, the world is quite a robust place, that we are going through bad times, but we will come through them. And uh, the Taliban will d disappear, the war on Tatara will become a memory. And I thought, fine, let's say that Al-Qaeda disappears in 10 years' time, 20 years' time. But what if, while they are around, they kill my brother? Mm. So in 20 years' time, history has sorted itself out, but I, but I still have this absence next to me. And, and so the first sentence is, history is the third parent. The first word is history. But as you go down the page, you actually leave this big backdrop called history, and you are really in the philosophical realm, how to be, how to get over grief, how to forgive. Right? And sometimes it seems to me that I've never got over a single thing in my entire life. So, so how do you, how do I get you, uh, used to the absence that is next to me? And that, I thought, was what the novel was about. That um, the book looks as though it's about the war on terror. It deals with, the, with these issues, but 
in a way that Cezanne painted tree after tree after tree, not because he was interested in botany. He was interested in something else. So the book looks as though it's, it is about the war on terror, but eventually that backdrop disappears, and then it's you and me, the human connection. That, yeah. I mean, despite the fact that you, begin, you, know, you have this segment that, mm. as you say, crept forward that, and forward, yeah. that in some ways is very... You start with a very kind of pastoral sort of opening, this wonderful Absolutely. garden, mm. this beautiful... Mm. Somewhere that seems peaceful and wonderful, where Ron mm -hmm. lives. Exactly. He's, he's a scholar. He seems a very civilised and humane Indeed. man. Mm. Um, but then it very precipitately mm. takes you into, into war, doesn't mm. it? Uh, and it very strongly, take, quickly takes you into a family story. Just tell us a bit about how it sort of develops from, from that that first well uh, the first sequence uh, the first section of the novel is called footnotes to defeat and and it's the um, 135 page section and within that the story of the war and terror to go back to what i was saying um, and it con connects with my previous answer that the war on terror for this family is over on page 68 i can't give anything away but and it's called Footnotes to Defeat, in that I, uh, the Taliban were defeated in 2001, I think, within weeks. It was over. We thought it was over. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to say, okay, page 68, the Taliban have been de de defeated. Here are some footnotes. Did you know about this? 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 That thing. And one of the notes I had uh, above my uh, desk, was, uh, when I was writing the book, was get to page 68 as leanly as possible because that's when the novel actually starts. Mm -hmm. The consequences mm -hmm. of what happened yes. for this particular family. So we have this chap called Rohan who's a scholar and he, and he has a school which got away from him during um, an earlier period of his life and that school has now become a madrasa, basically a nursery for jihadis. And, um, and then he has a son who has a wife. And so the son goes off to Afghanistan in, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Uh, and um, something terrible happens there. And so it's basically a love story in a way. And um, it's basically two lo lovers that spend the, the novel trying to come together at one point towards, and I think it happens about here in the novel. <laughs> and, um, and then when they meet, um, she utters what for me is one of the key sentences of the novel. Um, she says, I haven't seen you for 479 days. I feel as though I've been in 479 wars. So the idea that men go off to war and women stay at home. Mm. And that was what I wanted to explore. And um, also sometimes my characters are wiser than I am. That, so during the writing of the book, during I think about the second year of the novel, um, when the lovers were still here and they hadn't met here, I had a moment of crisis and I said, why are you doing this? The book seems to, to, to be a machine to bring these two people together at some point in the future. What will change? This seems to be the only engine. 
is the war on terror going to finish? Are the Twin Towers going to go back up when these two people meet? Are, they, um, are any number of horrible, is, is Rohan going to get his eyesight back? What is going to change? And, and then again, when they meet, um, the heroine gives the answer. And he says, uh, she says that I kept saying to myself that I wanted you here. And he says, I wouldn't have been able to do, to change anything, meaning that I am weak. And she says, you don't understand. With you next to me, I would have coped. Nothing would have gone away, but with you and me together, we would have coped. Mm. And that, I think, was a... And as I said, I don't know, the, the, the collective intelligence of the book is greater than my own intelligence, somehow. And I think if you're a novelist, you will feel that, that the possibilities that are generated by the narrative, you actually don't know that... Uh, Tell me a, a bit about settings in your books. Not, I mean, where you set them in terms of country, but also the kind of places, this idea that you often create mm. what feels like a sort of a pastoral idyll, a kind of enclave um, in the middle of a, a community that seems quite other. Now, you've set your books in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in uh, Britain. In, in, in Britain. The, your maps for lost lovers were set mm. in, in Yorkshire. Yeah. Just tell us about some of those sort of shifts from one place to another. Well, one of the things I wanted I, that I always want is that I want my landscape to slightly float an inch or two above the surface of the earth. It's real, but it is not quite real. And, and I like the idea of pastoral, even though this is an urban novel. Within that, there's, here is this speck in which there is this rich, mature garden, which everything else has disappeared, has been consumed by the urban reality, but that small pocket has remained. And that, I think, must be something to do with my own sensibility. And I, and I don't really want to examine it too much. <laughs> I was just going to say, tell me more about that. What well, do you mean, no, no, what no, do you no, I, mean I, that? In that, to have the idea of, of insects and water and light and beauty natural beauty to actually not forget. When the manuscript of this book was finished a year and a half ago, it was sent to my publishers around the world. So it was sent to publishers in the West, so Britain, America, Spain, France, Germany, uh, Norway, Sweden, and what have you. And this was the first time we were getting a publisher in India. So it was sent to a number of publishers in India. So, so seven or eight people in India read it, and through them they sent it to Pakistan. And seven or eight or nine people around the rest of the world read it. The response invariably from the Western readers was, this is a dark book, this is a bleak book, this is a savage book, this is a brutal book. The response invariably from India and Pakistan was, this is a beautiful book, this is a gorgeous book, this is a lovely book, this is an exquisite book. Same text. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not to say that over there in the developing world, we are not aware of our darkness. Because they did mention the, br the br brutality and the, uh, and the savagery. That was the second or third thing. Just as the beauty was mentioned by the Western publishers, that was the second or third thing. It's just that we refuse to be defined by our darkness. That I personally, there are people, and this is not just anecdotal evidence, in India and Pakistan, I, there are people in my life over there 
who say in the morning, I'm going out to work and I don't know whether I'm coming back. That the challenges are so huge that, and, but if you concentrate on that, you wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning, just on a purely practical level. So you do end up focusing on a blossom. So you do end up focusing on the flicker of an, an insect's wing. You, you, you do, for a few moments, get lost on the water playing on the surface of, light playing on the surface of the, of the water. So that is, I, I think that is how it must be. Um, so, and, uh, and I mean, I get as much pleasure from, from looking at an apple as from eating it. So, as I said, that is my sensibility. One of the things I remember about uh, Dante's Inferno is that Beatrice has emerald eyes. You know, so this is, color is important to me, senses are important to me. And so, during the writing of this book, and I think I should read another small bit from the um, uh, novel at this point, and again, to set it up a little. So, in the novel, Rohan is losing his sight. And, and in order to prepare for that, I read a number of books, What is Blindness Like? And then I arranged a number of interviews with visually impaired people. I thought I would go and talk to them and ask them questions. But I don't have the kind of character, I don't have the kind of temperament, which means that I meet someone and within, within the allotted hour that I have, I can begin to ask intimate questions. I don't think clearly enough, fast enough, and, um, and it takes me a very long time to work things out. And, and I also thought that, I mean, this is the condition somebody is living with, and here is someone who's entered their life and is asking them, them, them questions for his own use. And a year went by, and I kept going and meeting these people, and nothing happened. I had no information. And so in the end I said, I will have to do it myself. So I taped shut my eyes for a week. And Completely? Yes. I mean, as in, you, as a, you didn't take, no, you didn't do it no, for 10 minutes no, at a time? No, or? no, no. So I taped shut my eyes for a week, and there were three more years to go. So the following year I did it again, and the following year I did it again. So for the dura duration of the writing of this book, I was without the use of my eyes for three weeks. And then, so, and the second time, the third time I did it, I was the smartest human being on the planet. I had arranged everything because I had learned from that. I drove nails in front of the cooker to know where I could rest my feet so I wasn't too close too, or too far. And the things, that, things like that. And the things that then you learn, that, that I learned, I was talking about it to some friends last night, that... Um, uh, one day my hand accidentally touched something warm and my head flooded with the color red. And after a while I tried it again to make sure that it happened, uh, that, that it wasn't a fluke, as it were. And it happened again, and I tried it again. And, and now in the novel, uh, Rohan says, when I want to remember the color red, I will touch something warm. And one day I heard rain and I made, slowly made my way to the window and I opened the window and I put out my hand into the rain. And when the drops of rain fell onto the palm of my hand, the first image in my head was the twinkling of stars here and there. 
And now Rohan says, and when I want to remember the stars, I will put out my hand into the rain. So this sequence that I'm going to read to you, it's, it's about what happened the second time. The second time after the week when I took off the tape from, around, from, from my eye, I didn't wait long enough in a semi-dark room to acclimatize myself to the to light. And I went immediately to the garden and everything just assaulted me in the garden. And, and I came and I just came back and waited. But that was very important, those, those few moments. And then once my eye had adjusted, I sat down and wrote exactly what happened out there, that I was basically, that my senses were invaded by the garden. And now this is what happens to Rohan. And the other thing is that Rohan is a religious man, but his wife lost faith, uh, who was also religious. But, but as, as people do, she said, I'm, I no long, I'm no longer a believer. And while she was dying, he kept saying to her, please accept God again, because if you're a believer, death just ends your life. It doesn't end your existence. There is an afterlife, and there are consequences to, to having rejected God. So because he didn't want her to be eternally damned, he kept saying, please, 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 accept God again, accept God again. And she was a painter, and, and she painted things from the garden. And so, yes, so here it is. Preparing himself for blindness, he commits everything to memory as he committed, as she committed everything to paper, painting the gardens, flowers, and birds onto his mind. And for several years after she was gone, the garden looked as though something important had befallen it. The limes and the acacia trees seemed to mourn her. The rosewood and the Persian lilacs, the people and the corals, and all their different fruits, berries, and spores. The seeds, tough as cricket balls, or light enough to remain afloat for half an hour. Inside the earth, the roots moaned her without even having seen her, and the white teak whose bark came off in plates the size of footprints. The lemon tree that produced 25 baskets of fruit each year. He was sure that all of them, as well as the lightning-fast lizards of the garden, were mourning her with him, and the stiffly rustling dragonflies and the blue-winged carpenter bees and the black chain of the ants and the tough carapace beetles and the various snails. In grief, he had whispered her name as he walked the red paths of the garden, and the word had gone among the glistening black brilliance of the crows and the butterflies floating in the sunlight, the Himalayan piaro, the chitrali satyr, the blue tigers, and the common leopard, and the swallowtails, and the peacocks. She had loved them and the world in which they existed, saying, God is just a name for our wonder. There was no soul, according to her, only consciousness. No divine plan, only nature. And we were simply among the innumerable results of its randomness, saying, I will miss this because this is all there is. Her last words, and then she had slipped out of his life, consigning him to decades of apprehension on her behalf, because he knew that the soul existed. And not only that, it was accountable to God and his providential rage. Unlike her, he knew that the dead were not beyond harm. It's a tremendously powerful part of, of the novel, that relationship. Exactly. I mean, we, we don't know this woman because she dies That's way before the novel begins. Mm. We initially meet Rohan as, as a grieving widower right. of many years standing. Mm. 
then slowly. And then slowly we begin to realise he's in some sense implicated Absolutely. in his, in his wife's death. Absolutely. And it's a very stark illustration mm. of these sort of clashing belief systems or lack of belief systems. Yes, it's a, it's a very good... I mean, I mean, and that I've had all my life. In my, my father is a communist as a, and is an atheist, but my mother is a, comes from a very religious family and she's very, very religious. So growing up, I had that around me, the idea that there is no God and the idea that, yes, there is a God. And that, um, so from my mother, the idea that I received very early on was the idea of consequence. Religion for me, even though I'm an atheist, religion for me was about consequence in that the idea of sin and, and reward in paradise. That if you do something good, the result will be something good. And if you do something bad, the result will be something bad. And I'm talking about heaven and hell. And of course, we can sit and talk about what kind of psychological damage it, it can do, the idea that I, I will do something because I want some kind of re reward for it. I won't do something because um, the consequence will be bad for me. But that is another conversation. So, and so I'm grateful for religion in that sense. And, um, and from my father's side, the idea of existing in the world, practically speaking. We had um, uh, earlier, um, um, Alex and I are staying at the same hotel, and we had a fire alarm at 6.30 in the morning. And uh, so I was wakened by the fire alarm, and I put on my trousers and a shirt, and without even my shoes. No shoes. I, no I, shoes. I walked out into the corridor to see if someone needed help, and beyond that, you came out. And the idea that we can't save ourselves, only each other, came from my father. The idea of social responsibility mm. and, and the idea that politics is important. I always say I, I vote every time I write a sentence. That, and if we have time, uh, to say something about what else I learned from the pair of them. And in a way, that is who the, the, the couple in the novel is, having adjusted a few things, etc., etc. Because my own life is what uh, is, is my first point of reference. So when I want to write about a friend, I will think about my own friends and then sort of tweet things. My aunt died in Pakistan a few years ago. She was a young woman, young, in her 50s. And she just had a brain hemorrhage and unexpectedly died. I was visiting my parents. And my father, my mother, and I were in the kitchen. And, and the phone rang. And my mother got to it before any, any of us. And, and it's one of those phones that, that is stuck to the wall. And she picked it up, meaning that her back was to the rest of the room, to us. And it was her brother saying that my wife has just died. And of course, my mother let out a cry of grief, and she began weeping. And she gave us the news. She turned her head, and she looked over her shoulder and briefly gave us the news that, that your aunt has died. And I stood up. My father stood up. And uh, my mother was weeping into the phone. It was a shock. My mother was weeping into the phone. And I didn't know what to do. Uh, a 
quarter of a minute went by, half a minute went by, three, three quarters of a minute, one minute. I stood behind her thinking, do I take the phone from her? And is that what she wants? That to someone to, to actually relieve her of a burden, as it were? Mm-hmm. Or does she need to go through this? Or does she want to hold on to the phone? Or will she at some point turn and tell me? I had no idea what to do. Uh, that all I kept thinking was, if she falls, I have to make sure that I am there to to hold her. And we're now into the second minute, and my mother is still weeping. And from the corner of my eye, I saw my father and go towards my mother, and he placed his hand on her shoulder and said quietly, we have to help him, not add to his burden. And within the next two or three seconds, my mother absorbed all her grief into herself. She straightened and she said, so anyway, how are you? How are the girls? Who, who else is there with you? What? And it was astonishing that I, as an adult, didn't know what to do. And so the idea that at that moment, her grief is not important. At that moment, it's his grief that is the main thing we have to look up to, 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 to think about. And that is, I think, what I learned from them. Um, um, and, and, and that is... You also learn from your family background, just to go back to this mm. idea of leaving, mm. uh, you know, in the, in the kind of, um, yeah. you know, trivial thing this morning that we've just been describing. You said to me afterwards, well, of course I left with no shoes. I was a refugee when I was, I was 14. I just left with, with nothing. Left. Yeah, so... And not only just... To, I just want you to kind of talk about this too as well, perhaps. You left your home... You left Pakistan, you were here. You also left your language, and yet you became a writer in yes. another language. Yes. And I wonder if you could just talk about, about that. Yeah. yeah, so this morning, that, that thing, I think it took about a fraction of a second. Okay, there is nothing here I need. If there was someone else there, I would make sure that they were safe. I even didn't have a shoes on. I just, one layer of clothing. And I walked out and wandered the corridor to see if someone needed help. And then he go, um, this is what, so when <laughs> the first sentence is history is the third parent. Um, when in 1979, the Soviet Union entered Afghanistan, uh, and it was decided that the CIA, with the help, of the Saudi regime and would channel billions of dollars of worth of weapons and money into Afghanistan via Pakistan. Um, there were people in Afghanistan and Pakistan saying, don't do this. What is going to happen to these shiny, beautiful weapons once the Soviets leave? Uh, this, and this mindset called the jihad that is being encouraged. The Quran was translated into the Uzbek language in Germany was flown to Pakistan, smuggled into Afghanistan, and from there smuggled into Uzbe- Uzbekistan, where it was pr- where the CIA spies pre- uh, held meetings with the warlords, saying, "Look, this is your holy book, which the Soviets don't want you to read, and it says you have to fight the jihad. Come, come into Afghanistan and 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 defeat." There were people who were saying, "Don't do this," and among them were my family. And of course, things were made hard for them. 
And as I say in the previous novel, which is directly about Afghanistan, that the Cold War was cold only for the privileged places of the planet. It got pretty hot over there in the third world. All the blood was spilled over there in the third world. So my uncle was taken away from us and given back to us in pieces, and my father was next. And I was 14. I was becoming at risk as an adult. You know, they, they would have had no qualms in taking me away. So we came here at Britain, and I don't come from an affluent background, meaning that if you come from the upper echelon of society in Pakistan, you can send your children to an English medium school, expensive fee-paying school where they teach you to, to basically they're training you to send the kids to Western universities and then come back and rule. That's a ruling elite. I went to an Urdu medium school, which was the language of my country. So when I came here, my English was very basic, like this is a book, this is a table. And, and by law, a child has to be in school until 16. So when I came here and I went to school and I did, and I did my O-levels and A-levels, the subjects I did well in were sciences. Because for sciences, your English needn't be good. You need to assimilate facts and reproduce them. If they happen to be in clumsy English, it doesn't matter. So I went to university to read sciences. But in my third year, by which time I had been in Britain for seven years, I knew that my English was good enough to do what I really wanted to do, which was to, be, to, to write. Um, uh, I always say I, I never wanted to be a, a writer. I wanted to write. But you <laughs> wanted to write in English? Well, by that time, in, uh, I was in England. and uh, And... I wouldn't say I was poor because an artist is never poor. Um, I had no money to go back to Pakistan and, and things were dangerous there anyway. So I thought, that's it, that part of my life is over and we begin a new life. So I dropped out of university. I didn't tell my parents that I dropped out. I kept lying to them every few uh, months. I kept saying, yes, I've passed my degree. Yes, I've got a job. <laughs> And uh, while I was working on the first novel, which took 11 months to write, and then I didn't know how to have a book published. But the writers I loved were V.S. Naipaul, John Updike, Cormac McCarthy, um, Timothy Moore, uh, Gore Vidal, who were published in London by a firm called Andre Deutsch. So I picked up a copy of Abend in the River, Naipaul's great novel about Africa, looked at the copyright page, got the address, and sent them the manuscript. And 10 days later, I got a phone call saying, um, we have your novel, come and have lunch. And I said, I can't. And they said, why not? And I said, I have no money. And they said, we'll give you money, come and have lunch. So, and then I went and had lunch, and they said, we will publish you. And so then I decided that because I couldn't do my O-levels and A-levels and my BA, my PhD, my master's and my PhD in the subjects I was really interested in, which was um, history, literature, um, uh, sociology, um, politics, now over the next however many years, I'm going to do that. So I would go to person A and say, tell me who's a great novelist. And you would say, Faulkner. I read everything by Faulkner. People would say, somebody would say, Hardy. I read everything by Hardy. They would say, Lawrence. I read everything by, Hard by Lawrence, Joyce, Conrad, Melville. And then I wanted to see you talk about language. 
what is a comma? How many, how much thought is allowed in a paragraph? And and how many ideas per page? How many ideas per chapter? So I copied out the whole of Moby Dick by hand. I copied out as I lay dying by hand. I copied out Blood Meridian by hand. Um, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Uh, uh, the Autumn of the Patriarch by Garcia Marquez, Bruno Schulz's um, uh, The Street of Crocodiles, because I wanted to see um, uh, how a book is put together um, by, the, by the great ones, as it were. And uh, so it was important. So, so, the second, so the first novel took 11 months to write. The second took 11 years, because I was actually... I wrote it over the course of the, of the 11 years. Yeah. Shall we open up to some questions for the audience? And okay. we'll, we'll come back to, okay. to more talk, too. Um, I think we have a, a roving mic. We do. Um, please do put your hand up. There's somebody right at the front here, just at this table. Thank you. There we are. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I was interested in the word sensibility that came up almost as a digression in what you were speaking about earlier. Um, but what strikes me about the range of reviews of your work is that people often concentrate on when they aren't rebuking you for politics, uh, your style and say, oh, here is a great stylist. And I don't know. I, I don't know how you feel, but I get increasingly angry about the things I was reading. So, for instance, when I, when when uh, Adam Mars Jones reviewed your novel in the Guardian, he talked about your everything turning into style as if you were merely copying Salman Rushdie. That magic realism was what this was all about, and he then picked out the passage in chapter two of the resurrected horses. Yeah. and said, it doesn't even make sense. And this is what happens when stylists turn just a style. And yet it seems clear to me, and it seemed terribly clear to me, that that second chapter, which I feel is as important as the first one which you just read, <laughs> is very much about sensibility. Mm. It's about how wounds in chapter one right. yeah. uh, <laughs> reveal energies that perhaps we don't even know of responsibilities in history that we don't even know of, things about identity. And I suppose, you know, after reading this book, which is the first I'd read of yours, I read uh, Ultra Lost Souls, and because I didn't know, I didn't know you were in Huddersfield. It was Huddersfield So your, your, your question really is how the, how the, I, I, I the wanted, idea of style I, kind of informs. Yeah, well, it's about style and the, the horses. I wondered if you would mention about, t talk to about the horses, because it seemed to me that was a passage that strung mm. with me. And why does Adam Miles Jones pick that out? Nadine. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. That's a very good question. Uh, but, you know, I'm still learning. Uh, if, if there's a point of criticism I agree with, um, I take it on board. I once, um, uh, there was an Australian reviewer and who said something about Maps for Lost Lovers, my second novel, which to me clicked, I thought that that was the inadequacy in the novel. And um, I mean, first of all, I would not let a book go until I think it's ready. Um, um, but 
there are things when you reach the last page that are buried so deeply in the novel that in order to correct them, you will need to rip out the entire novel and start again. Which in a way is what you do because you move on to the next book with that knowledge, saying don't do that in the next one. Yes. And um, so, so this Australian reviewer, uh, and I thought, and he picked it up, and I sort of, when I was in Australia, I wrote to him and said, can we meet? And he was really nervous. <laughs> he thought I was going to shout at him. Uh, and, uh, and I said, no, 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 you were right in that, I mean, who am I? I I'm still learning. It's, uh, it's, um, storytelling is um, an art. It's, it's one of the, it must be one of the oldest things we have. And I think it might, stories might even have an evolutionary advantage. That is why they have survived, in that they help bind a community together, telling us this is worth cherishing. Mm. This is the enemy. That might be, right? Yes. So th this is why we, so I think that is why they have survived. And I have, to, uh, to answer your question, I have a lot to learn. It's, uh, it's, but Nadim, uh, there is, of course, your storytelling is an mm. art, but yeah. it's not a science, and there are many ways to tell but a story. It, so there is a place for individuals. I mean, novels are not the same as one another, are to they? To go back to the, exactly, exactly. Mm. To, but to, to go back to that point of, of style taking away, what sometimes happens with my books is that I like language to be a participant in the storytelling, uh, a major, in places. The way if a camera, if a film director is filming a battle scene, he will make the camera jittery to, to suggest speed, confusion, etc., etc. So there are places, and I can count them on the hands of two fingers, on the, on the fingers of two hands. <laughs> yeah, well, on the fingers of two hands. Um, on the fingers of two hands, um, the places where I, where, where I do that, and the language becomes all style in that sometimes I saturate the colors. In the, in, the, in the bit about the garden I read, the entire novel isn't like that. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's not, not exactly. only is it not like when that, bits of it are very different, exactly. aren't they? Bits of it are very different. Exactly when you think I need to make the camera jittery, an entire film with the camera going like that wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. But what can happen is that if a reviewer is has it in for you. They will actually go and say, look how bad the prose is. <laughs> um, so that, I think, uh, and that is nothing I can do no, uh, about. And, uh, uh, Shall we have another, another question, please, from somebody? Let me look all around the room. Somebody right at the back here. Sorry, I'm sending you all over the place, but right at the back over there. You don't have to run, though. <laughs> like you to fall. Thank you. I thought it was a fantastic book um, and it's full of really startling images and I wondered, for instance, the helicopters, the Soviet helicopter graveyard where yeah. the fuselages are all covered in dry, tinder dry yeah. lichen and it yeah. catches fire. Did that image and, and others like it, the, the shrine that's covered in writing from the Quran, do, do those come to you fully formed or are they based on personal experience or a mixture of the two? <clears throat> I think it's a mixture of two. I, um, I like to use images as a, to reinforce my storytelling. Mm. So, um, and, uh, so 
it happens. Uh, I actually saw sort of a pile of decommissioned, um, a pile of uh, disused routing uh, planes, um, Soviet planes in Afghanistan when I was visiting Afghanistan for my previous novel. So, and I took some photographs and it just, I mean, it, it takes a long time to write and then things click and you are given these things. Um, um, in my previous novel, The Wasted Vigil, um, which is set in Afghanistan, um, there is a room, uh, th there is a house where the novel takes place and all the ceilings are covered with nailed books. So somebody has nailed books to, to the ceiling. And that image came to me, um, just sometimes you are given a gift, really. You, you, one moment you don't have it, and the next moment you do. And there's this like a, like a spiritual impression that is le left on you by someone, by some image. So I said it would be nice to write um, about this, how, why the books were nailed to the ceiling. And of course, it was easy um, because I was writing a novel about Afghanistan and, and it was about a house. And the Taliban had said that only one book exists, should exist, which is the Quran. And uh, everything else needs to be burned. And they made piles of bonfires of books, which they burned. And in this house, again, we had a couple who were, um, who were sort of lovers of books. And uh, so I thought in order to save it from the Taliban, they nail their extensive library to the ceiling. And every now and then, a book falls to the ceiling. And you wrench out the nail, and you open it, and there's a hole all the way through it. And, um, and so I was de de delighted that I could use it. And, and so throughout the novel, there is this rain of stories. Frequently, the books fall. And, um, and then somebody picks it up, and, and you read whatever it was. So I thought, OK, I will use that book, too. It took four years to write. And about five months into the writing of the book, I said, so what? The Taliban don't know how to look up. They will look up, and there are the books. Right? right. So I said, OK. The books need to come down. They don't, it doesn't make any sense. So I went back and I write by hand. So I crossed out everything. And, but the image was so beautiful that two or three months later I said, I know, we could put the books up and then they could paint over them. So the books had to, to go make, back up. So I went back and I put the books back up. <laughs> and two or three months later I said, they would still look like books that have been painted over. It's, it's, so I, I took them down again. Two or three months later, I said, it is such a beautiful image. I need to use this. So I said, maybe what they could do is put the books up, and then they could have a false ceiling. And, 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 uh, so I said, great, we could do that. But for the present of the novel, that happened years ago. For the present of the novel, um, they, the books had to be bare because they were falling to the ground. And I said, well, maybe they could then take this in the... Said, no, it's not going to work. So I, uh, and so I took, took them off uh, again. Uh, the false ceiling disappeared. There, there were no books. Then two or three months later, I said, you know what? This is such a bit... And then I said, this is madness. And I said, that's it. Madness. 
a sane person wouldn't try to save books <laughs> by nailing them to the ceiling. A mad person would. And I, so now there were two people in the house. And I said, so which of these two is going to go mad? And Marcus, who's the Englishman who has married an Afghanistani woman and who lives in Afghanistan and who, whose house it is. Marcus I needed for the present of the novel to, to be sane because he's the main character of the novel. The, also the other obvious candidate was his wife, Katrina. But Katrina was tougher than he was. Marcus is very gentle. That if anybody was going to go mad, it would be Marcus. And so the books came down again, but eventually when I was researching, uh, I found an incident of something that happened to a woman in Afghanistan. I said, that moment will send her over the edge. So I brought that into the novel, and the books went back up. So that is how long it can take. So as I said, the book took four years to write, and that image came right at the beginning. And, but it wasn't working, it wasn't working, it wasn't working, but then... But you wouldn't let it go. Well, because it is, it, it is and now that is all everyone talks about, <laughs> about that book. The books nailed to the ceiling that keep falling to the ground. And when the bombing, uh, and the house is in the shadow of the Tora Bora Mountains, where Osama bin Laden was uh, last seen before he was seen in Pakistan. So when the bombings, when the B-52s began to bomb the Tora Bora Mountains, the house begins to, begins to shake and in one corridor the entire books come down and, and they spend there taking them. So everyone who reads a book and they said that maybe everyone who comes into this house should take a copy from here and so that they can recognize each other no matter where they are in the world. A fellowship of wounds. So, yeah. so that is how long it can take. Can we, can we have a thank you? I think the books are finally up. Aren't they? There right. they are. Good. Um, can we have another question, please? Yes. It's right down, down at the front. Thank you. I'm delighted I'm here. Delighted you are here. Thank you. My question is very different. Uh, first of all, I feel uh, humble and inadequate after li listening to the review of your life. The West for want of a better term, spends and has spent a great deal of time telling other countries, civilizations, ways of life mm. that they ought to behave like mm. us. Mm. Can this go on forever? Ought we to be doing it? Ought we stop it? Well, um, thank you. That's a very good question. And I imagine that that, that is what I'm grappling with in the books, in that what can we take? from one side and the others. And, and um, there's a sequence in the novel where um, one of the characters is a woman who's a seamstress, Tara, who makes clothes. And someone comes to her one day, a young man, and says, can you make us an American flag? You, can you stitch us an American flag? And, and she says, why an American flag? And he says that, we are holding a rally on Friday after the prayers and we're going to burn it. And uh, she needs the money, so she... Um, and there's a, a two, three-page sequence where she wonders what the red in the flag stands for, what white is for, and she cuts out stars and she 
She stitches the stars onto, um, onto the flag and she wonders what the stars are for, etc., etc. I, so that's how that, that sequence was written. And this is again linked with the previous uh, question and answer. And, and I thought I was happy with it that I had done my work. And when I began to revise that sequence, I suddenly, again, I was visiting my parents. And I went downstairs from my teenage bedroom when I was working on the book, and I said, Mama, what does the American flag look like? I asked my mother. And she said, I don't know. And she says, the British one is that one, I know. And uh, I don't know what the American flag looks like. And I said, do you think the woman next door knows? And she says, I'm sure she doesn't. And I said, what about my aunts in Pakistan? Do they so we rang our aunts in Pakistan, and how are you, et cetera, and then said, do you know what the American flag looks like? And they didn't know. So now in the novel, when the boy comes up and says, can you please stitch us an American flag? She says, show me what it looks like. And he draws a picture to her, uh, for her, and that is what she uses. And my mother, after I had asked her, and she says, I didn't know, she went through a few months and she says, oh my God, you must think I'm stupid, that, 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 that I'm an idiot, I don't know what this basically. And I said, no, no, no. In that, and that's the thing in the, that this illiterate woman, semi-illiterate woman, that when she talks about the red in the flag and the blue in the flag and the white in the flag, she's a very cosmopolitan, sophisticated person. She refers to the carpets in Shiraz, the blue mosque, she, she refers to the Red Mosque in Delhi. So there is another way of being sophisticated. There is another way of being cosmopolitan that doesn't refer. My mother is not stupid. She's a very, you, you know, um, uh, sophisticated person, except that her sophistication doesn't derive from certain things here in the West. So that is something I am aware of. And sometimes I forget, as I said, I needed that moment to actually go down and, 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 and ask her. Uh, but as a, n now, I think it might be too late in the day to actually say there is such a thing as Eastern wisdom and et cetera, et cetera, or the West should not do this and the East should not do this. It's, um, it's uh, we need to keep an eye on the powerful people in the world no matter where they are. So, um, you know, it, it, and we were talking about language. Uh, one of the most humiliating things over the past decade as someone who works with language has been to witness the corruption of language that has gone on around the planet. So the American administration keeps talking about this thing called extraordinary rendition. What they're talking about is kidnapping. Say it. They keep talking about this thing called enhanced interrogation. What they're talking about is torture. Say it, you know? And it's not just happening on there. It's happening, it's happening on the other side. The Taliban and Al-Qaeda are talking about this thing called jihad, meaning only one, that it means fighting, fighting the infidel, what's a, until you die, etc. The word jihad has as many meanings as a rose has petals. To smile at someone when you don't feel like smiling 
is jihad. To, to be kind to someone when your own life is full of meanness is jihad. But no, no, no. They only want one meaning. And so on the one side, the language is being used to obfuscate what is really happening. And on the other side, language is being reduced to it's, it, it is um, uh, in being impoverished. And so I no longer am able to think in East and Western terms. It's just uh, I always said that I could live anywhere if I loved someone. So what America? What, what New Zealand, what England, what, what Pakistan, India. And, and I think that might be the case with everyone. It's just that uh, we are lied to every day and we can begin to think that these things are important. When there's a fire, you walk out of the hotel with your bare feet. Trust me. Nadim, <laughs> thank you. I think we... Can that's, 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 you say you've asked us to keep our eye powerful. Yes. Well, I've done that most of my life, but none of them have ever listened to me. <laughs> uh, well, well I, you, you know, uh, there's that line of Victor Hugo that not being heard is no reason for remaining silent. Yeah. So. Thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.